welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I head development at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. This podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. If you really like this, and I assume you do since you're listening, be sure to subscribe and also give us a rating. Don't give us a low rating. If you're going to give us a low rating, don't give us a rating. If you're going to give us a high rating, you can do that. That'd be that'd be really helpful. Um, today, we're going to talk about Section 230 in the case of Gonzalez versus Google. If you don't know what this is all about, you're going to know. You're going to learn real quickly. It's a really interesting and important issue and really interesting and critical case. Our guest today is the expert. She's Ashley Johnson, a senior policy analyst at ITIF. She researches and writes about internet policy issues such as privacy, security, and platform regulation. Welcome back, Ashley. Thanks for having me back again. I guess this means I did pretty well the first time. Yes, you passed the test. Excellent. But we're talking about the same thing. So maybe we should start off with a refresher. What is Section 230 and why does it matter? So Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is a law that was passed in 1996, and it deals with a concept called online intermediary liability, which sounds like a very obscure legal jargony term. But what it actually means is really dealing with who is responsible for the speech that goes up on the Internet. So an online intermediary is any service or individual that hosts or shares content that they themselves did not create. Somebody else created it. In these days, usually the users of the website created it. And so this law that we have in the U.S. governing online intermediary liability draws the line on how much legal responsibility those websites and services have for the content that their users post on those websites and services. And Section 230 says that basically they're not responsible for the content that their users created, which if you boil it down to its simplest terms, the people who created the content are responsible for the content. It's a pretty straightforward legal concept, but it has created a lot of discussion and debate, especially in the past few years. The rise of social media has really revolutionized the way that people share and communicate with each other online. We're able to disseminate our viewpoints and our opinions and our thoughts uh, much easier than we ever have been able to in the course of human history. And that's a really good thing for political discourse, for people finding niche communities. It can also be a really bad thing for people who want to share violent or illegal or in any other way, quote unquote, harmful content, uh, which kind of is in the eye of the beholder, which I'll touch on later. But that is where a lot of the controversy comes from. So both of the, uh, the main provisions in Section 230, and there are two of them, ensure that online intermediaries, the services and websites that people share their opinions and thoughts and other viewpoints on, they ensure that they are not liable when they fail to remove something that maybe somebody might find objectionable or believe is harmful. They're also not liable when they do remove something that they personally believe 
is objectionable or harmful and, you know, doesn't fit with their idea of what should be uh, allowed on their platforms. And this is a very broad protection. It's broader than the protections that exist in many other countries. Um, Because of that, it has enabled a lot of innovation in the United States. You know, we have so many social media and other tech companies that have flourished in the United States. It's also meant that the debate here in the United States about content moderation and how it should be done is is very complicated and has been going on for a while. And it might come to a head very soon with this, you know, the events of this year. And if Section 230 is so important for the modern Internet, which you've written about a ton, why do some people want to change or get rid of it? It's definitely related to the phenomenon that you've written about a lot, Rob, the tech lash, the backlash against the tech industry, um, and especially companies that that people would classify as big tech, which is kind of a loose umbrella that people can kind of put whatever company they don't like into sometimes. And Rob has fact-checked a lot of the common criticisms that people have associated with the tech lash. And a lot of them are related to this debate as well, uh, which is not surprising. They're kind of related to, I would argue, almost every tech policy debate that's going on right now. So the concern over political polarization online and the creation of filter bubbles, um, the spread of extremism and hate speech online, potential for harm to children to take place online, alleged bias against conservative viewpoints online, the alleged downfall of the news industry because of online news and social media. Um, All of these ideas and many more are wrapped into people's concerns around Section 230. And the way that I sort of make sense of all of that and summarize it into one main point that I, I personally think distills the main arguments against 230 down is there are two main groups of people who want to fundamentally change or even get rid of Section 230. Unsurprisingly, those groups are for the most part split along party lines. So we have Democrats on one side. They're more likely to blame Section 230 for the proliferation of content that they believe is harmful, uh, which includes mis- and disinformation, hate speech targeting minority groups, radicalization and extremism, content that's harmful to minors and content promoting or depicting violence, to give a few examples. Uh, And they believe that online services and especially social media platforms are not doing enough to filter and remove these types of content. And so they want to change Section 230 to strong arm these companies and services into uh, removing more content. And then on the flip side, you have Republicans who are more likely to blame Section 230 for bias against conservative viewpoints. Again, especially focusing on mainstream social media platforms, they see prominent conservative figures getting their posts removed or their accounts suspended or banned, and they feel like social media platforms are encroaching on their free speech. And so their solution is the opposite of Democrat solution. They want social media platforms to remove less content. They want social media platforms to be more of a haven for free speech. And that does sometimes include uh, controversial content. And they think that platforms should be liable when they remove these controversial but legal forms of content. So, Ashley, is it it maybe a simple way to understand this? You talked about 230 having two components. One is it 
it doesn't, uh, it, it exempts the uh, platforms from liability if they take something down, and it exempts them from liability if they don't take something down, essentially. And I, it seems to me what the Democrats are saying is, well, let's get rid of one of those. We'll get, we'll get rid of the one where you're, um, we're going to hold you liable for not taking something down. And it seems like the Republicans are saying, no, no, we, we, we'll keep that one. We, we don't like the other one, which is you cannot, if you take something down, you'll, you'll be liable in court. You can't do one or the other because, uh, you know, we could we could have a, you know, a system. Imagine if we just picked one of those, where would we be? I don't know if you just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. It's two very different images of what the Internet should look like. And taken to the extreme, I don't think most users, regardless of their political leaning, would like where it would most likely lead us. So if we get rid of the first provision in Section 230 that protects platforms when they fail to remove something that is potentially harmful, we're going to most likely see online services like social media platforms, but many, many other services that rely on third-party or user-generated content, and so they rely on Section 230. This We're going to see them... This would be things like, for example, sorry to interrupt, this would be things like uh, TripAdvisor. Mm-hmm. You know, when you want to... I'm going to yeah, TripAdvisor. Going to Florence, and somebody said, oh, I don't like this restaurant. Yeah, totally. TripAdvisor, any other review website, websites like Wikipedia that rely on uh, user editing and contributions, any website that has a comment section, um, so that covers so many even smaller blogs and forums that allow visitors to comment. Yeah, that's all third-party content, and so that's all protected by Section 230. So in this world where platforms are liable if they fail to take things down, we would see them becoming a lot stricter with their content moderation, and they're going to remove anything that would potentially get them into legal trouble. Even if it's not illegal content, someone could still sue them over it. There are plenty of nuisance lawsuits that that happen in this country all the time. Uh, They're very expensive. And so even if they don't have a very strong legal standing, platforms are still going to want to avoid them because that's a big expense. Um, And so we might see them getting rid of any content that could be potentially controversial. The biggest downfall of that is that a lot of that will include political content. And currently the internet is, I would argue, the most important forum for political discourse in the modern world. And we really don't want to lose that. That's where a lot of underrepresented or minority groups have been able to find a voice. It's where just any average person can can find a political voice. And then what about the opposite if we did the other one instead? On the flip side, you know, we have Another sort of radical view of what the internet might become if taken to the extreme. If platforms are liable for removing speech that's legal but potentially harmful or objectionable to some people in some way, we'd see more of a sort of Wild West version of the internet. And there are some people who who want that to happen, but I think there are a lot of people who value having rules and terms and conditions on the websites that and online services that they use. They value being able to sort of avoid super inflammatory content, potentially hateful content. They don't want to see these types of things. And they would rather platforms be able to set rules that will sort of clean up their their feed, 
and make sure that their feeds are not flooded with spam, harassment, all these sorts of things that most people would rather avoid, but that are still legal forms of speech. So I just want to dig into that just a little bit more. Um, like TikTok, for example, or I think Instagram's the same way. You can post a picture of yourself if you're a woman uh, in a very skimpy bikini, but you can't post yourself topless or nude. And they will take down things like that because they want to have it be, you know, it's, it's not a porn site. Would this affect their ability to to maybe be liable if they take down some of the, that kind of pornographic or, you know, lewd, if you will, content? And then would it make it less family friendly or, or am I wrong on that? Um, I'm not sure exactly where the law would fall on that because they do allow users, you know, uh, as as young as age 13 on their platforms. I think because of that, they would still be able to, you know, filter any content that is. So I think they would still be able to filter that kind of content, but it would still apply to a lot of other content. I mentioned spam. Spam is perfectly legal and it's very annoying. And I would argue that almost everyone hates it. And that is the kind of content that platforms get rid of a ton of. And I would argue important to the modern Internet that they that they get rid of it. Well, I've decided that my phone is basically now a spam machine, um, mm-hmm. as I'd say. I, I literally 80% of the calls are marketing calls now, even though I'm on the do not call list with the Federal Trade Commission. I have no idea what that does. So this is all super interesting, but there's a case now before the Supreme Court that is going to um, kind of you know tell us what's going on. And that's the Gonzalez versus Google case. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? What's that case all about and what's at stake? Absolutely. So for a long time, we've seen, as I mentioned, these two different political parties approaching Section 230 in two very different ways. And it has, for the most part, led to a stalemate. We haven't seen any major changes to Section 230 in the past few years. And it seemed like it was going to stay that way for at least maybe the next few years, except perhaps on areas where Democrats and Republicans can reach an agreement, like possibly child safety. But on just about every other form of online speech, they're diametrically opposed. And then the Supreme Court announced that it was going to hear this case, Gonzalez v. Google, which is a case where the family of the victim of a 2015 terrorist attack are suing Google alleging that YouTube's algorithmic recommendations lead users to ISIS recruitment videos. ISIS was the group that carried out that particular terrorist attack. And so they're arguing that Google is partially responsible for the attack because they their algorithmic recommendations on YouTube enable ISIS to recruit members. According to Section 230, as it's traditionally been interpreted by lower courts, Google isn't liable for the ISIS recruitment videos on YouTube since Google played no part in creating them. And that's how Google has been able to successfully defend itself in lower courts as this case has made its way through the courts. Um, But this is the first time that the Supreme Court is hearing any case related to Section 230. So they don't necessarily have to follow the legal precedent that's been set by lower courts. They can decide the case entirely just on how they view its merits. Um, And so the plaintiff's argument that they're bringing to the Supreme Court 
is that Section 230 doesn't apply to algorithmic recommendation of content. Google might not be liable for the content of the ISIS recruitment videos themselves, but it should be liable, the plaintiffs argue, for recommending that content to users. And if the Supreme Court accepts this argument, it would be extremely significant because, as I alluded to, it would break with decades of precedent of how Section 230 has been interpreted by by the courts. Why is so much of the criticism of Section 230 and social media focused on algorithms? I would say that a lot of people agree with the basic Section 230 principle that I outlined in the beginning of this discussion, that the person responsible for certain content, content that's illegal or that harms someone, is the person who creates that content. That's a simple, a simple principle, and I think it makes sense to most people. But a lot of those people who are critical of Section 230 or would like to see it change see algorithmic recommendations as a gray area. YouTube didn't create the video that you're watching, but maybe its algorithm recommended to you it to you, and you might not have ever found it unless that algorithm recommended it to you. So people view it as a less passive role that YouTube is playing or that any other service that uses algorithms, which is most of them, uh, is playing than just hosting content. And then underneath this more logical argument, I would say there's also the reality of how many people view algorithms, which is very negatively. People don't, most people don't understand how they work. And there's been a lack of transparency from a lot of online services that use algorithms. And in some discussions and debates on the extreme end of things, it seems like the algorithm is this mysterious dark force that knows everything about you and it manipulates your actions. Again, this is just a very negative view that a lot of people have of algorithms. And many are nostalgic for the old days of the internet uh, when content was displayed in chronological order for the most part, even though in today's internet, the way it functions, that wouldn't be a very useful way of, of ranking content. There's just so much of it these days that we do need algorithms, but there's skepticism and there's also been a lot of fear mongering. So I love basketball six foot seven, played basketball. And I watch these really good basketball video things on YouTube. And so I just sort of click on that. It just keeps feeding me basketball videos, which is great because if it randomly started feeding me hockey videos, I'd be like, what the heck, man? I don't like hockey. I like basketball. So I love those algorithms because they're basically figured out kind of what I like and what I enjoy from what I continue to click on. But I want to ask you a question. Wouldn't the al- the algorithm would work both ways, potentially on 230. Because one of the things that I, that I do know some platforms do, rather than ban something that's really, really bad, I mean, there's stuff that's really bad that crosses a line. And then there's stuff that's bad, but doesn't cross the line. They just won't, they just won't promote it. So it's still there, but you're not, not likely to see it. If you get rid of 230, their ability to do that would potentially go away. So, you know, objectionable stuff would you might see it much more than you would otherwise. So it, it's sort of the same thing with the other, with just take down versus keep up. It's the algorithm is promote versus demote, and both can be useful. Absolutely. And um, a lot of tech companies and trade associations and tech policy think tanks and nonprofits 
have filed amicus briefs uh, to the the Supreme Court on this case. And one of them, Meta's amicus brief, actually touches on something related to that, which is that a lot of platforms use algorithms for content moderation reasons, not just to feed you content that you might like, which, as you mentioned, is also a good thing. I, I love getting fed content that I like as opposed to content that's completely irrelevant to my interests. Are you going to tell us what content you like? I like to watch a lot of baking and cooking videos. I don't always bake and cook at the level that they're baking and cooking, (laughs) but it's sort of aspirational for me. Like maybe one day I'll be at that level, but in the meantime, it looks, it all looks really delicious. So that's what I'm into. Wonderful. And the cats on the internet are a lot funnier than my cat. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All the cat videos I am fed are pretty great. Mm-hmm, exactly. And so, you know, that is obviously a good use of algorithms. But another good use of algorithms is that platforms use it to screen for even illegal content, not just harmful content that they might want to demote instead of promote, but illegal content like the kind of terrorist content that's at question in this case. Meta made the point uh, in its amicus brief that it uses algorithms to screen for terrorist content and remove it. So algorithms do a lot more than I think the average person really thinks about. So would it make a difference? First of all, there's so much content out there. You can't have human moderation. It's impossible. Companies use algorithms to flag things that then go to a human content moderator for sort of the final yes, no. But you just can't have, there aren't enough humans on the planet probably to do this and we'd all go crazy if we had to. So the question then becomes, does it matter if, and, and secondly, algorithms, they're not magic, uh, but you, you can do an ISIS video without using the word ISIS. And so it may, maybe it's just a video of somebody shooting a gun and, and there's somebody else there, uh, you know, who, who's, who's into a sportsman or sports person and they like, you know, they like hunting and shooting. And so maybe it gets fed that. So I guess, does it make any difference whether the platform just tries their best or doesn't care? In terms of the Supreme, how we should think about the Supreme Court case, the Gonzalez case. If you're trying your best and the algorithm does not, it makes a mistake. It's like, well, why should you be liable for that? You've tried your best. That's something that a lot of smaller companies uh, or smaller organizations, less well-funded organizations are worried about. There are, uh, I know Reddit and the Wikimedia Foundation have both filed amicus briefs, Yelp as well, which you know, as a website, we don't we don't really think of as being big tech. It most likely doesn't have the resources that a lot of larger, more established companies do. But there are there have been amicus briefs filed from from quote unquote smaller companies and organizations like these. And these are the kinds of companies and organizations that are very concerned that if something something happens to Section two thirty, they don't have quite as many content moderation resources as their more well-funded counterparts. They can't afford to hire as many human moderators. They can't afford to develop uh, as sophisticated content moderation algorithms. And so they're, they're very worried that maybe intention won't matter in these legal cases that they're, that they're going to have to deal with if Section 230 gets gutted. So we're running out of time, but I want to ask if If the Supreme Court does rule in Google's favor, will anything change? Is Section 230 still at risk? 
I don't think the debate will end even if the Supreme Court doesn't change anything about how, how the law currently works. I'll be able to breathe a little easier for the time being, and a lot of other Section 230 enthusiasts will. Um, but we're still going to have these two political parties with split visions of the future of the internet. And I honestly don't know how we're going to be able to reconcile that. I'm hoping that there's room for a thoughtful and deliberate debate and action on areas where Democrats and Republicans can find common ground. We've seen some promising efforts at bipartisan compromise in internet policy recently and in the past. So I think there's room for compromise here too. And that is what I will be hopeful for if the Supreme Court doesn't end up changing Section 230 in a drastic way. Ashley, you're a little bit too modest because you wrote an excellent paper on how to think about moderating political speech. And right now, the companies don't have a lot of guidance. You know, what are they supposed to do? And, I, and there are some solutions you've proposed in that paper, and we'll put that up on the webpage when we're finished. Yeah, absolutely. There are definitely areas where Republicans and Democrats can come together, I believe. Hey, this was really great, Ashley. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. We have more episodes and great guests lined up. We hope you'll continue to tune in. 